Hey, if you're loving Creative Mind, check out some of our past episodes where we dive deep into topics like children's book illustration, video game design, filmmaking, and of course, the most important topic of all, how do you make a living as an artist? So please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you never miss an episode. And check out the show notes for links to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube page for even more great content. To me, it's the same language. It's dialogue, the characters are acting. The only difference is instead of telling the actor, okay, let's try to hit your marks, you're just gonna tell an animator, like, okay, this is what the scene's about. This is what the character's trying to do. You know, you're just telling a different person. That is Emmy-winning filmmaker, animation director, and co-creator of Dragon Frame Software, Jamie Caleri. Hi, I'm Bobby Brill, and on this episode, we go further down the rabbit hole of stop motion with Jamie Caleri. For almost everyone in the stop mo world, Dragon Frame Software is part of the standard production line for creating compelling animation. And one of the reasons it is so powerful is that Jamie has spent his career directing and shooting beautiful and artistic animation, music videos, and title sequences. And of course, joining us on this podcast is also Aaron Wadamuz, a stop-motion artist and the stop-mo lead here at the Academy of Art as well. But before we get into it, please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. Now, here is our conversation with Jamie Caleri. Why stop-motion? Why not something far easier than, than stop-motion? Well, that's an easy one. I mean, some people like to work with physical objects. That's all. It's just as simple as that. And if you like to physically pick up a lens and light something and you want to work with real light, that's a world you feel more comfortable with, kind of moving around a set and having the interaction with a bunch of people all kind of working on one set at the same time. Or, or basically you have all of these different kind of artistry, you know, that, that comes together, sculpting and painting and set building and depends on what you're doing, of course. But the fact that all these people, they're all craftspeople who have decided, well, I'm, I'm better with my eyes and my hands, or I enjoy that more than sitting and clicking with a mouse. So it's not about easy. It's about kind of how do you spend your time? It's like a lifestyle choice. And one is like to deal with some people want to get paint on their fingernails and some people see animation as more of like they're removed from it and they're, they're it's just I'm pushing these light and, and dark and, and colors around on the computer. That's, that's just a different way of thinking. But yeah, I would say most of the people that get into stop motion are people who might even go, well, I'm good at sculpting and I also like storytelling. I've always sewn stuff and I've always liked to make things with my hands. And now, you know, there's this medium of film it's basically film and they like film and so okay i want to be part of that i know i'm good at making little stuff so i think that's kind of the draw for most people that they get into stop motion yeah i was going to say i think that that's very much it i mean it's the place where you know there's no rule to it and, and there's no rule to any animation but it's very much a craft thing and one thing i really wanted to ask you about was that you know especially in our 180 class our first entry level class we have a paper cutout project and i know this is an area paper cutout our paper animation seems to be you know, one of your main things. And I just kind of was curious because I love paper animation and I feel like that's even a smaller faction. I see it every once in a while. We always show your United commercial. That's like one of the first, the dragon one and heart. And, you know, that's one that's filmed upright too, you know, and we shoot usually flat. Some students do try, you know, that extra dimension. But I'm just wondering, how did the paper thing start for you? How did you come to that? I've always been around paper. Like my mother was really kind of a crafty person who could do some pretty beautiful stuff with folded paper and paint and whatever you put in her hands. As a kid, I was always around, like she was always paper crafting some pretty complicated 
stuff. Making something out of paper was not foreign to me. And then I did some work at CalArts. And when I was a student, I was just a kid, you know, 18, 19. I was doing photo cutout stuff where I was shooting live action on black and white film on twos, well, at like 12 frames per second. And then I was processing that into stills and then cutting out the stills and then backing the stills and then putting those back into miniature sets and then doing camera moves on them and kind of doing this sort of reconstituted live action stuff that was kind of fun. And I actually did that in the early 90s in commercial world too. So I was used to dealing with like cut out characters. Like I did that a ton of that in college and then right out of school. So the early nineties, but that was replacement, right? So I'm just replacing these things and it's very process oriented. Then, you know, I did live action for a while, I did a lot of other stuff. And then I was asked to do the Lemony Snicket end titles. And so it was their idea that people who hired me that they had already pitched to the director was a design company uh, called Axiom. And they had pitched this idea of paper puppets like little paper cutout puppets. So then they brought that to me and I directed the sequence and worked with some really talented animators and the sequence got a lot of attention. That was all, by the way, After Effects work. So that was all After Effects. And we were really kind of pushing After Effects to its limits at that point in terms of like Z-depth and things like that because we were really doing the 3D stuff and we kept breaking After Effects. So it's kind of crazy. But then what happened was, you know, someone saw that who had the United Airlines campaign, the ad agency. And they said, oh, let's, let's find those people. Let's find that guy. So eventually they asked me if I would, you know, storyboard pitch an idea for United Airlines. And they were like, make it like that lemony thing you did. So, okay, all right, we'll do paper cutout. So we pitched them the boards, but then I said, you know, but this time I think I'd rather shoot it real. And, and that was more about getting out. You know, I like to light things. I like to light real things. And in the computer, I always feel a little bit, straight jacketed in there. I always feel like I'm kind of poking around in the dark where other people zip around really well in, in the computer. It's a little difficult for me. Yeah. So I thought, well, let's just do it. And then it'll be more fun because then we'll get we'll like build a bunch of crazy sets and we'll have to have people with really different skills and we're going to make a mess. And so that to me is more fun. And so then, yeah, so we did it and that one was well-received. Then you get called the paper cutout guy, you know, <laughs> so it's, it happens. That, that's just... <laughs> I noticed, I just kind of looked over some stuff in like the, the shins video. It seems like, you know, it's mostly puppet, but I see you use paper almost like an effect. In right. There, we did you know, the, we is, did the rabbit, is, as which a, is great uh, puppet. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know at what point we decided that, but, you know, I was doing that with Alex Juhas. He was doing all the design work on that. And what had happened is he is an illustrator, trained illustrator. He did the United Airlines spots, all the illustrations for that. But then there was this period where he was actually playing Dungeons and Dragons a lot with his friends and he kept making little sculptures. He, he hadn't done sculpting much before, but he kept sculpting little warriors and he was just sculpting like hundreds of these little warrior guys. And he said, you know, if we do another thing soon, I want to make some real puppets. Like, let's do some real sculpting. And so that was the, the Shins video was his first time sculpting puppets. But then, yeah, somewhere along the line, we're looking at the design of it. And I just kind of thought, yeah, let's do the rabbit. Let's make that kind of easy and make it more iconic. And, you know, I knew he'd be able to illustrate the rabbit really well. We just get like a rabbit, you know, where if you're making, now I got to make a bunny and a little armature, like, I, you know, I don't know, right. that's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we already had a bunch of other characters to make and it just seemed stylistically like it would work. It just seemed like yeah. it would work. And it, yeah, I think it did, you know. Definitely does. Yeah. That brings up a question, I think, for both you, Aaron, and you, Jamie. 
there's so much stop motion we see out there. And we've all seen this great stop motion in a lot of commercial advertising where you have uh, a thing in the world that's already made moving. You know, everybody who's had a Super 8 camera, for some of us who are old enough to remember Super 8 cameras, it was always beer cans or soda cans, you know, G.I. Joe's, action figures. I mean, there's that world of stop motion. But then there's the world of claymation, and then there's the world of, like you were talking about, puppets and things with armatures and the things that you're creating from the ground up. What is the aesthetic choice or, or the influence for that to go that route of creating your own individual pieces as opposed to working with something and kit bashing it and creating a puppet or an armature from that? It's just a school of thought. I mean, really, like if you have a love for animation, you know, one of the things you might have a love for is the creation of a world or creation of characters in a space that's never been invented before. So I think it's just an extension of that. And then as far as like the found object stuff goes, I mean, that's almost like its own thing. And some people turn that into an art form like Pez, you know, with his found object stuff. And he goes this other route of like, I'm going to make this look like that. Like that's his like whole shtick, you know, which is, I don't know if you guys ever saw his first film, which was like about these secret world of chairs or something. And it's like, is fun college ish kind of film. I think it ends with chairs having sex on a roof at one point. I do. I do yeah. remember oh, that. Yeah. In fact, that I, that in rings fact, a bell. Yes. It's funny. The, the, the wacky things we see like, what, what was the, what was the kicker on that? Oh, I didn't right. realize that was him actually. I, yeah. That was one of his things. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. And he's made that like into a whole thing, but animation is wild and varied stop motions, whatever you want to stick in front of the camera. Really. There's like a weird line between what is stop motion versus like drawn animation or because you can kind of mix them both to me it's right now it's like anything you can put in front of a camera and it's lit in a three-dimensional ish way but you know some people would consider well I, I guess I would too like if you do like sand animation that's technically stop motion you know because you're shooting one frame at a time you're sculpting the performance one frame at a time I, I think that's really the the big definer is are you keyframing well that's going to be cg or hand-drawn are you not keyframing that stop motion? Because you might be aiming for keys that you've planned, but you don't, you're, you're aiming like a live action actor tries to hit marks or just like a live action. I mean, camera's different because we use motion control. We pretty much know where the camera's gonna go. But as far as performance goes, it's much more like when an animator is starting to animate, they go into a slow motion performance. It's just like an actor doing it. They're just going, it's just moving really, really slowly. And they're just like, I got to get to frame 93 and the arm's supposed to be up and I'm supposed to be hit the focus point, you know, and, and that's the big separator, I would say, between stop motion and hand-drawn, you know, because hand-drawn, yeah, you just lay down and go, okay, I'm going to try to get to this pose and you can look through them and, you know, start to draw in-betweens and all that. Right. It's very much a performance when you animate something. And and on the last thing, I would say you can animate just about anything with stop motion from sand to found object to whatever. But, you know, a lot of the animators that I know are, even for me, I feel like I've kind of known what my style was for a long time artistically. And everything kind of goes into that. And it's something that's kind of a lifelong quest to build that and develop that. You know what I mean? So everything I try and make is of that style personally for me. And Again, I'm very much a hands-on technical person, too. I know some of the computer backhand, but stop mode to me seems like the most organic. For me, it's the right medium, at least for animating. Well, did that in 2D, some 2D, but... If yeah. you, I mean, if you, it's like, should be a checklist, like, do you enjoy taking multiple trips to the hardware store? You know, you might, I, you might enjoy a career in 
stop motion. It's so funny because I think when I'm doing that, I always feel like, oh man, you're the most disorganized person in the world. Like, why? But but that's just part of it, right? You always miss. Are you realize I need that part? And you know, so uh, that was the wrong epoxy. Let's try that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's <laughs> funny because I mean, epoxy. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, even in high school, for a lot of people, and and earlier, if you're lucky enough, it seems like stop motion is that first thing people try whether it's that hand-drawn animation or here's some play-doh sculpt something and we're going to show you how to click 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 move click move click move click and create something well they say that like every you know i've heard artists talk about this too that like you know imagery and icon like iconic there's certain visual elements that they already have like energy to them right so like if i reach for the tide box that's on my shelf well, you know, that thing has been designed the hell out of, you know, so, and I just pick this thing up and I just drop it down in front of the camera. I've now, I've just got some free design, you know, and then I pick up the Campbell soup, you know, I've just got, they, they, there's a whole team worked on this for a while, you know, and it's been through some iterations. So in a way, the reason that that becomes like the first fun thing to play with is you get stuff for free. You get a charge for free. You know, you get the beer bottle shape and the whatever, you know, you get things, people go, oh, I know what that is instead of like, you're drawn and people, what is it? What did you try to make? I, you know, what is that? Why doesn't your bird have wings, dum-dum? How come it's not working? <laughs> or as a, a friend of mine who graduated with an amazing hand-drawn film from CalArts and went on to become a successful director was told, asked by her mother, why isn't your film in color? I mean, that was back in the day. I guess people didn't, you know, now everyone's films are in color, but those days it's like, you just, if you could get a minute of hand-drawn animation done and shot on the black and white down shooter, you know, that was pretty amazing but yeah i guess you know yeah that stop motion is one of the first things people try because you it's immediately you get the idea of oh i get it the frames and then i went too fast okay try that again you know like or eases and ease out it's like you can just demo that in like 10 minutes and someone oh, okay i got it or here's here's a bounce i'm going to make this thing look like it's you know it's a great way to demo and learn some real basics really quickly yeah because you know you're not going to jump in and start doing a walk cycle or something unless you're brilliant you know, I don't know. yeah i want to ask you about dragon frame a little bit i've been deep in it i mean for years but the last two weeks i've been shooting every day for about four hours and i gotta say i'm kind of a, a preacher for your product i tell people about it all the time and one of the reasons why is because back in the day you know shooting film when i first started messing with film it cost a lot of money to even get a little piece of animation, you know, from the processing. Right. And then, you know, video taps came in or people were trying to like press record and stop as you know, video <laughs> cameras, you know. But anyway, and then when we first built, I was here, you know. Did I, you guys I do the lunchbox? You guys do the lunchbox? We lunch did. Box? Then there was the lunchbox. Yes. The lunchbox, which, you know, was a lot of used for pencil testing in 2D. But then when I was at the Academy years ago, and I just came back like a year and a half ago to stop mode, but they were building the department. Well, it was probably a little over 10 years ago, but it was right before Dragon Frame, really mm. kind of right there. So we were actually using something, we were using video cameras, something called iStop Motion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, Dragon Frame comes in. And to me, it's kind of the ultimate example of how technology has put like the industry standard in people's hands for like a pretty low price because you know anybody can buy dragon frame for pretty cheap and get to animating pretty quick so uh kind of curious how did it start how did you even start how that happened yeah with the development of it you um, know well i will just say to your point that is part of our belief with our product is that we make something that it's the same thing on the stage at leica that you that someone else can get so 
And, you know, sometimes it, that can be a little crazy because no one's using motion. 2% of people are using motion control or whatever, you know, like there's parts of the program that are actually some of the biggest parts that most people are, you know, kind of get for free and they don't even realize it. So I appreciate that you noticed that many people told us, oh, you ought to have all these price points and charge more for the studios. And so, you know, no, no, it's one, it's just one price. Everybody, everybody gets the same thing. So that I'm glad you took note of that. Well, as far it's as how it started, you know, it's opened up the world. It's really opened up the world of it to a lot of people. I know people that work in the fine art world that use it and people, oh, cool. you know, I've seen a lot of uses for it. Yeah. Yeah. It, and when we were first starting, we didn't know who was using it. I mean, we saw that we were selling, but then I would watch at the time motionographer was a good website where people were sending in finished pieces. And I would go that stop motion. And then I'd see if they had like a making of, and I'd literally like fine tooth comb, watch the making of, and sometimes the camera would just, you know, <laughs> you would pan, and I'd be yeah. like, "Go, go! There's the dragon. There's the dragon frame keypad." Right. I see right. It on the table. Like, we did it. We did it. We won. How it got started is a long, it's a long story. Sit back, children. No, it started because I went to Cal Arts, and you know, I was shooting on my 35 millimeter system, and for that, well, that I was just shooting dailies. But then I wanted the 35 system to be controlled by a computer, so I hooked it up. Uh, with the help of a teacher at college named Dale, I want to say Dale McPherson. It's a long ass time ago. Dale helped me out. He was awesome. And he made me a little driver that would drive a motor. So I put the motor on the side of the camera and all that. And then I had this little driver box for a while. It was just a button and it would just, and it would shoot a frame. But then I wanted to hook that up to a computer. So I got a little, an old Apple 2E that had a little port on it that I could plug into. And I wrote a basic program that would do, give me some different shutter speeds and go forward and backwards. It would like, it would do a few cool things. And then I brought that while well, I was programming that I brought it home to Ojai to my parents' house and my youngest brother, Diami, so I'm about six years older than him. I think he was still in high school at the time. He was like way better programmer than me. So he, he was the mathematician. He had a mind for that. I was just kind of ah, just doing my best. And he said, what do you want this thing else? Do you want it to do? I can make this do some stuff. You know, I said, oh, I, sometimes I like to shoot two frames forward, one frame back, two frames forward, one frame back. So I can get like these half frame dissolves. And so he's like, okay, you know, and he, and he wrote all these other things and that program, you know, then I would add some things and he would add some things. And this was like how I controlled my 35 rig for many years. And like in the early nineties and I was doing commercials and stuff, I had this funky Apple computer running my system. And then I even rented it out at times, you know? So now at that point, that's not getting to see anything. That's just controlling. It would calculate some basic camera moves that were all hand crank dialed on stuff. And then it would just run the camera, you know? So, and it would keep a really good track of what frame I'm on in the system. So I had this thing called a hole punch where I would punch a hole in the tests I did and in a dummy roll. And then I would do this like hole punch number, whatever it was, but it was a way to like, at any point I could say, go back to this place. And then I could open up the film camera and look and just see like, am I at the punch? Because I used to do a lot of multi exposures on the same piece of film. So anyway, he helped out with that. That was my tool for many years. I did a weird ad for Pepsi, Fruitopia stuff. It was like live action and it had some stop motion in it. Mark Osborne actually worked on it with me. And we needed to do some testing while we we're shooting. And, and Diami, my brother, wrote a, a little app on the Mac that was a like you know, it was a frame grabber. So back then on those Macs, whatever they were, those pretty crappy ones, but they had a video in on the back, so you could just plug a video camera in, NTSC, and there you go. And so he made a thing that would just grab the frames, and 
you could kind of reorder them or you could play them back at film speed, you know, ish. And so that was this other thing that he made. Then that went nowhere. I stopped doing stop motion for many, many years and all this stuff kind of sat for a while. So then when I was asked to do the United Airlines spot and I said, I wanted to do it stop motion. Okay. Am I going to shoot film again? And we just kind of ran the numbers on, you know, I didn't want to go to LA. I wanted to be in my hometown here in Ohio and like, okay, what's it going to cost to like take the film every few days down to the lab and then have it scanned. And and we just started to kind of think about it. And I had this little point and shoot, but it was a nice one made by Leica, the camera Leica and uh, had a nice little zoom. I think it was like kind of wide to medium, you know, which is kind of a nice shooting for stop motion. And I said, well, let me just try some tests with this thing. And we shot some stuff sequences and it was okay. Uh, I think I just shot like high risk JPEGs. I don't think I even bothered with raw. And then I saw it had a video out on it. That was like a live video out which is pretty rare at that time. Now we take it for granted, but Canon didn't have it yet. Nikon didn't have it yet to actually get a live view at the same time that you're about to shoot. So I said, hey, can we run this video into the computer? Then like take the stuff, like all the nice things I had from the Apple program. And then maybe some things from the frame grabber, like let's put this all together. And he worked on it. He had a a real job that he was working. So on his off time, he would write this little program that would bring in the live view from the Leica, which was something like 320 by 240. Like it was just nothing, little postage stamp. And then I think he doubled it on the screen just so we could see it. So if you watch that commercial and see how smooth the animation is, that was done with the ridiculously low resolution. Anyway, but it did things like uh, multiple pass stuff and like lineup layer. Like it had some really great basic things in it. And then I went and um, worked at Leica for a little while, the animation company, I could see that, you know, they were working on Coraline. I could see that the frame grabbing system they had was not super great. It was kind of slow. You know, they'd put some work into it. It did some interesting things. They were running these weird cameras. I won't get into it, but basically it was, it would take to get the left eye and the right eye because they're shooting stereo. I think it took over a minute to get a frame. So, you know, they go shoot and now it's like, okay, you know, (laughs) so, now I had my little, it wasn't called drag. And it was like Caleri stop motion machine or so. It was like, when I was just my, my little thing that I would shoot tests. I was in the art department and we would shoot tests on that. And it was actually faster for us to turn around a test with my stuff. Not that they took much notice of it at that point, but I left the Coraline production after about five months. It wasn't really for me. I was doing art directing, which is a whole nother story. It wasn't, wasn't really my, my deal. And then this guy, Tennessee Norton Reed, he's an animator director. He said, hey, we worked together on a project. And he said, you got to sell this software. This is great. People need it. So talk to Diami and we kind of, you know, we're from a family that had a lot of failed small business attempts growing up. So we kind of knew not to get too excited <laughs> or spend all our money. <laughs> so, all right. I got another wacky idea, everybody. Let's get all the college's funds together and, uh, and, yeah. and, and Christmas yeah. money. Here we go. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. We've been down that. We've seen that movie before. So we're very conservative about it. We just, it was like, you know, I was on Photoshop. He was on his stuff and I'm making little buttons and things. And we didn't spend any money on it other than our sweat and time. And then it turned out right then Nikon was coming out with a camera with LiveView and Canon was coming out with a camera with right at about the same time. And we got a hold of those cameras, right? Kind of as we were releasing it. And then that was also while I was shooting the second United Airlines spot, which was, I think it was done like a year and a half later. It was quite a while called Heart. And so we were testing it on that job 
and kind of putting it through its paces. So I think it was March of 2008 is when we released just kind of on the website. We put up a teaser website first, which was kind of funny because what happened was there was two big, I won't name them, but there was two major stop motion software companies that were on the PC that contacted us and said, hey, why don't you be our version uh-huh. on Mac? Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll just put our name on it. Yeah, that's what say it is. It's this for Mac. And we're like, you know, we're going to give this a go. You know, We're going to give it a go. That's interesting. You know, going back just a second, my wife and I, Anthony Scott actually gave us a tour of the Coraline set when we were passing. Oh, nice. We were coming from Seattle. And I remember those camera setups. And I did, and I and now that I think about it, yeah, I remember I asked him what they were and he kind of told me, but I can't really well, remember. Well, I can tell it. you what, it's not a top secret thing anymore. Yeah, but were, he said they, they were red cameras, right? No, they, no. They weren't, they weren't they, red? They, they, were, uh, they were painted red. Oh, okay. Um, they, yeah, they, I remember they were physically, <laughs> they were physically red. It's red-ish. <laughs> red like That's what I thought he meant. I thought he didn't want to tell me what they were. So he said, oh, it's just a red camera. You know, um, so anyway. They... They called them the red cameras as a, you know, I think this is before red cameras were really a big deal. Right, that it was, yeah. So. Uh, but what they were was they were technical cameras that they use manufacturing to find defects, right? Like, let's say you're making like a high def TV and it goes by and they like turn on all the green pixels and they turn on, you know, they do whatever they're going to do. And then this thing would look and go, oh, you got a problem here or it could be put anywhere like but they they're basically high resolution cameras color uh, but they had a lot of problems and it was it was a little bit it, i don't know if it was the best decision <laughs> they could have there was nikon cameras that were really good at that point i don't know what they were thinking I, but oh, i'll tell you what they were thinking they were thinking this is awesome technology and it'll last forever and i think it lasted one movie because it didn't have the underlying technical support to get the image off the sensor properly. Like, you know, you go get a Nikon, like you get all that free, all that programming that's in there, you know, that that does all this stuff and processes the image. I think Leica was having to do a lot of the processing themselves, the debearing and all that stuff that I don't really know much about. I think that it was all kind of on them. And then what happened was the technologies and the sensors got to a point where after Coraline, they're like, yeah, look, just go get another, just go get a Canon or whatever. Yeah. So we released in March of 2008. And then it was just a kind of a slow, I think one of our first customers was Cup of Coffee, professional customers, it was Cup of Coffee Studios in Canada. And they were at the time producing a lot of different TV shows. So they needed something. Then they were really fast paced. They were just churning out shots there. They needed something that was reliable. You talked about 35. A lot of us, you know, have never touched film, unfortunately, or very little. When Dragon Frame became what it was, also around this time, all the DSLRs were coming out and you could get real cameras. And, you know, I mean, a lot of us were like, oh, my, I can finally do time lapse now. And that was, you know, how I got back into stop motion because all these cameras had intervalometers. And a lot of when I was in college, I was working at a big camera store and we were selling them as, hey, this is a time lapse machine. This is a stop motion machine to to university because it was like you could do this stuff finally. Right, right, right. There was always, you know, the handful of nerds that would come in with the big video cameras and go, does this have an intervalometer on it? Can I do things like this? Can I do frame by frame? And there you would have to know which one was which. But I mean, that, you know, I don't want to skip over that because that's a fascinating thing that you went from film to high resolution digital overnight, practically, it seems. I mean, very quickly. Yeah, I never shot video ever, you know. So I went from always shooting film, whether it was a music video or whatever, I was shot, you know, 35 or 16, to then go to that, to digital stills. And in fact, I've just now recently purchased a digital video camera proper 
for the first time. I've never, never been a video guy. So for me, the digital stills were much sim more similar to film frames, the resolution, the quality were, you know, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the interpretation amazing. of light, it was like, oh, this is pretty close. Right. Yeah. You could push and pull on them a lot. And then the computers were catching up to the point where you could really do some great image processing and after effects with them and, you know, your color timing and everything you could do it yourself. It's pretty cool. One of my closest friends was Bruce Bickford, the clay enemy. He passed two years ago and I was with him when he passed. You guys very generously gave him a dragon frame set up many years before he passed. You know, it was just sitting like everything with him. It was kind of on the back burner. When he passed, we had the humongous task of archiving his body of work taking photos of it and stuff in his house that is up in Seattle. So we went there for a week. We estimated he probably did about um, a million and a half clay figures in his life. That's what we're in his two garages. I mean, not counting the drawings. The drawings were something we got at like about 80,000 of animation drawings. And there's all this stuff being worked on. But anyway, we needed a really quick way to just get it in some light and to... And we used your Bruce's dragon frame setup, courtesy of you guys. And then at the end of the day, we'd go back to the hotel room and we'd hit play and we'd get to see all this. Yeah, amazing, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So That's anyway, cool. what I'm getting at is that, you know, I don't know if there's a ton of other uses, but I found dragon frame useful in a completely different way. You know what I mean? It was a great way because just the cinematography window, being able to set everything, adjust things, you know, light changes, comes night, you know, it just everything. It was just so quick and at our fingertips. There was nothing else out there for it. So we mm. used it as an archival thing, you know. So right, right. Was, you know. And you already know the ins and outs of it. So you're, right. you're good to go. Where yeah. maybe if you had gotten like a Capture One, or, I mean, there's, there's I'm sure I, there's other things out there, but it, to me, it just made sense at the time, you know. You know, and I even think now, I haven't tried it yet, but I, you can tether to Lightroom, which is, you know, also a great way to yeah, work. I haven't, I done, haven't that. done that yet. Yeah, but we haven't done that. I don't know, like, the file structure. I mean, with Dragon Frame, I kind of know, like, oh, this is going to go into a folder. And well, that's the thing. Is we it's going to be numbered or whatever. I knew I, exactly. I it was going to go in. It was going to be organized. It was an easy, easy way to organize and keep track and make logs and just the that's whole great. deal. So, well, yeah. That's cool. So that well, was, thanks for know, sharing that. Yeah. If I wanted to tell you one thing, it was that. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. That's a great story. That's That's cool. Yeah, and also a, a like Bruce about, never shot a frame with your stuff, but we no, got... he he actually <laughs> did. He I no, uh, let me get to. Uh, I actually gotta say, there's um, a payoff. The, the payoff the, has okay, to come so here. the last thing I worked on was the Zappa film that just came out. It's an amazing documentary, Alex Winter. You just you should watch it if you haven't. But it has a lot of old Bruce footage in it that had never been or was just sitting in Frank Zappa's archives, right? But anyway, Bruce was kind of there was some talk of him doing a little bit of animating for that. So I know that a couple guys. They got it going and they shot a few scenes. So there's probably about 20, 30 seconds out there of Bruce Bickford dragon frame animation that maybe someday we'll see some light. Yeah. So he did shoot on it. He did. And I used it a few times when I was up there too. So oh, good. <laughs> it got some use. Yeah. One other thing I want to say is that when I first got dragon frame, I think that the new one, because I don't know what update it was, where you put in things like the drawing tools, the increment editor. I mean, these to me are just like game changers as mm. far as being able to figure out your timing and all that kind of stuff, you know. Are these things that just I think that came... was three, two or three. It, had the yeah, drawing. I think it was probably three or something. But how do you guys get your ideas for updates anyway? Do, do they just come as a need, <laughs> a need or do people like well, contact you or, you know? It's a little bit like it's like you're building a, a castle or something. You kind of have to have like the foundation first. Some people are like, I need a thing way up there. Like, well, we're not up there yet, you know. So some of it is just like you, we had to start with like just getting playback to work and, 
the cinematography space to work and the audio to lip sync correctly on the, you know, like some of it just like base, the first couple of versions, just like get it working on all the different computers with all the different cameras. And there was a lot of things to sort out, not really for me to sort out, but for my brother to sort out with like dealing with all the different camera libraries and everything. And then we were able to then go, okay, well now what do people need and kind of put in a priority? Yeah, obvious things like, yeah, you're drawing on the screen. Increment editor, I don't know if that was my brother's idea or mine or how that came up. It also may have been someone's suggestion. We get lots of suggestions from people. And also things kind of build, right? They call it um, in software development, they call it feature creep, but it could be like, we make a drawing tool that makes a nice curve. And then I'm sitting there standing there going, well, can we put some ticks on this? And then, oh, and then can I ease in once I, like it just, things can kind of snowball where then it's like, are we ever going to release this version of the software? But yeah, so, you know, it just sort of builds and then, then there's things like, oh, I wanted to do more with motion control or people in the motion control industry would say, well, you got this and this is good, but we, we've got to have these other things that are in our other tools. So sometimes it's just like, okay, well, we've got to try to reverse engineer some stuff. And, you know, that happens mostly in motion control. And then like DMX, I'm not sure that actually came up from, we were doing a 3D slider thing when 3D was big. And the guy that designed our electronics, Steve Sweetie, he said, you know, while we're at it, we could just throw a DMX chip in here. I didn't even know what DMX was. I'm like, what's that? DMX means lighting control. Yeah, system, the lighting right? stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know what that was. And he was like, oh, there's a, you know, it's a protocol for like rock and roll lighting. And so my brother and I were like, yeah, do it. So that went in early on into this 3D slider controller. And then that became one of the biggest hits of the software. Then, then we ended up making a box that just had the DMX chip in it and you know that's kind of a staple now i mean that really has blown up like the amount of stuff that people put on dmx and then we had to take it from whatever it was 100 channels we had to take it up to 500 channels and now people are putting these multi-fixture you know you put a fixture on a fixture which is like a light that's got 10 controls you know and one is color balance and one is you know like these led lights and so then you have to have the ui deal with all those like so anyway that's something that has sort of grown organically but it, it grows because people use it they go oh you put this stuff in and, and we did this this and this but oh gosh could we also we really need it to do this other thing and then if we hear that more than once from different people then we open up the hood and start messing with it sometimes i just come up with random ideas that sometimes suck and then some you know things definitely put in things that no one's used but for the most part i have a pretty good idea of being in the industry and being someone who uses it to know like, oh, I just really want a button here that does this simple thing. And, and if I draw it up and make a good explanation, I give a good pitch, then we'll, you know, make it in. But we get a lot of input from studios, you know, and sometimes it's conflicting. You know, sometimes you never do this. Okay. Always do this. Really? Like, you can only do stop motion this way. No, you can only do stop motion that way. Everyone else, you know, it's funny how like these little cultures will pop up. For a while, everyone said, your keypad is too small. We can't use it. It was like this weird thing that went from like three studios decided they had to get these big geriatric keypads with tripods because they were all people who were used to using the lunchbox and they needed to go wham, wham, wham with their finger. You need to use their I was like, fist. you know, you could just kind of go like this, like <laughs> someone inputting, you know, they can just go like this. It's like not that hard. You know, then a couple of years later, then everyone's using the key, you know, so. The keypad is great. I mean, the Bluetooth one, especially you can just creep it here, put it wherever, you know, oh, it's, good. Great. it's great. Yeah. We haven't really gotten a lot of bad feedback on that. We weren't sure, you know, you never know you put on a new device. that's going to work in a different way. Now we got rid of the USB. So now what we have is the Bluetooth. Yeah. It comes with a cord. So if you get run out of batteries, you can just use a plug in the back. 
Hey, just want to take a very quick break and say thank you for listening to Creative Mind. If you have any questions or thoughts, let us know. Click on the show notes for our email or head over to anchor.fm slash creative mind to leave a voice message. How does somebody get into the world of stop motion, which is a terrible question to ask, and it's still a very lame oh God, question. Um, There's definitely more stop motion being done now than there ever has been. Yeah, for right. Sure. I right. mean, if you look at the output too, if you look at the output of music videos and short right. films and right. movies, how many movies? I think we there was like five years in a row where there was a stop motion film nominated for best right. yeah. picture, right? Or best yeah. animated film. So right. we're definitely at the highest amount right now. I mean, I don't know if it's peaking and kind of come we'll down see. but there's more stop motion being done no. than ever for sure and i think that kind of speaks to what i first said because it is so easy to get you know what i mean for price point wise i feel like that's has to be part of the reason why or do you well i think you... the other the other reason is what i was talking about before which is that it used to be that somebody would be like well i like to build these things and i kind of like film and then maybe they're like a little bit nervous about the shooting I'm going to shoot. And then I got to pay for developing. And so now, you know, maybe someone starts on a little app on their phone and they go, oh, this is actually, this is kind of fun. And I'm going to build a puppet. Like the entryway, it, there's not like this mystery between the shooting and the see, seeing it done. And it's not like this crazy expensive thing that they put in their mind that's going to happen. So I think a lot of it is just that there's always been people who would be willing to do it, but then they kind of got nervous about the film side right, of it. Right. You know, exactly, yeah. um, because mm-hmm. now you have people like, well, I thought I was just someone who liked to sew garments for puppets or whatever, for little dolls. But now I realize I want to make a movie. And so they do it because it's, you know, they got the tool and they can just also people who tend to like to do stuff like making things on their own tend to like to have their own tools and they like to be in control. So the fact that they're not having to like go borrow a movie camera, we get some lighting and then, you know, it goes to a lab. The fact that oh, I got my camera. And I got my lights and I've got my computer and I'm, you know, I can close the door and no one's going to bother me. I don't have to ask permission. Right. Anymore. No, exactly. And I think even with the new, like being able to tether to the smartphones now, like the iPhones right, and stuff, right. that's even opening it up even further to me. Like now people, a lot more people are going to try it than, because to me, the thing passed you know, getting Dragon Frame, the, the next biggest Cameras, thing is getting, getting the yeah. DSLR, right? Spending right. the money on the camera. But yeah. now you can just get the Tether app and you know, a lot of people got an iPhone or... And I don't know how much you've messed with that, but, you know, there's I have. actually a few commercials a that were shot with it. And Looks one great. nice thing about it is the focus is that you can animate the focus. Oh, I haven't messed with that. but Yeah, you can wow. you can animate all your focus in the, in the motion control section. Oh, great. I yeah. have not messed with that. Somebody just told me about it a while back, so I plugged it. I got the app. No, no, I, you got it. You got to you got to start animating your focus poles and stuff. <laughs> oh, cool. And it's very repeatable. And it's actually we were dealing with a big camera company about some issues with trying to get their lenses to be repeatable so that we could control the focus within Dragon Frame and repeat yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of, we sort of teased them, egged them on. Like, the iPhone does it. We can do it. <laughs> well, the iPhone you know, does it. Come on, work it out. Another thing I noticed, Canon now has the R. That's like a stop motion kind of, it has stop motion in mind, right? And I noticed that on their, they mentioned yeah, you guys. So you can you yeah. can get a version with Dragon Frame friendly. We work closely the, with them. The firmware, and, right? Yeah. So they've yeah. got some firmware. And one of the main things it does is it knocks your live view up to 1920 by 1080. Yeah, yeah right. You know, that's mm-hmm. one of the main things. And there's some other little niceties in there too. You can like access the focus peaking and I, there's some there's some cool stuff. You're right. Yeah. Well, now that you've got all that simple stuff though, I, I think, you know, the question that I was trying to get more to was with the technical limitations essentially gone, 
Cameras are cheap. You have it all in your pocket. You know, that, that's been a way for filmmaking for a long time. 10 years, 15 years being a long time. If you're going to tell somebody how to be a oh, stop well, how to motion, get into it. Not, right. not, not how to get into it, because you know that, that's a loaded question, but how, how you direct stop motion for somebody who goes, I understand a human, but I don't, don't understand this thing that somebody else is creating and animating. How, how do you direct stop motion? What's that thought process? Well, yeah, I've done live action and animation. I don't really consider them to be really different. You, you still have the same process that you got to plan out what your shots are. Well, you have to be more of a planner and any animation, right? You can't just be like, oh, let's shoot it from the left and then shoot from the right and pick our favorite one. You've got to go, okay, we're two seconds here and then we're four seconds there. And then we're going to go to Y. Like you got to, you know, or, or you spend a lot of time reshooting things. So you got to be a storyboarder. You know, you got to be able to think like a filmmaker and an editor, which you could learn that by watching just live action films. You don't need, it's not specific to animate. It's not like animations cut differently than live action. Animation is always kind of chasing after live action in a way because in live action, you're free to experiment more. So you're going to get more iterations of experimentation and filmmaking in live action. So animators are always looking at live action. Like, okay, what are they doing? Oh, that's an interesting way to cut these things, whatever. But as far as just like storytelling and filmmaking, you could take a classic Disney film and literally just take the boards and go, okay, go shoot this live action. And you could, you know, you'd be good. To me, it's the same language. It's dialogue. The characters are acting. The only difference is instead of telling the actor, okay, let's try to hit your marks. You're just going to tell an animator like, okay, this is what the scene's about. This is what the character's trying to do. You know, you're just telling a different person. That's all. And you're and you're not going action. <laughs> you're going like, okay, I'll see you in three weeks. Yeah. You have to be more fine tuned because you don't want to set somebody in a direction of animating something just because you had like a little momentary idea spark of brilliant spark of idiocy, and then they do it, and then you go, oh, uh, yeah. You know what? Let's go back to what was in the original script after they've tortured themselves on some really difficult acting you know so i think it focuses you more when you're directing animation because you don't want people to waste everyone's time it's you know it's probably very similar especially you know stop motion has got a cousin and they're they're buddies and that's old film effects right so film effects you know star wars movies all that stuff not just the creature stuff but the spaceships and you know right. anything that's shot one frame at a time we have to go we got to get from here and we got to get to there all right, let's try, you know, let's program in some move or, you know, whatever, let's see what happens. And you got to tell a bunch of people what you think is going to happen. And then you got to shoot it and go, oh, actually for the editing, let's take five frames out of the whole move and shoot it again. You got to be able to know what frames are. I guess, you know, you got to kind of think that way or you got to go, you know what, this would be great. Just pull that frame out. And then suddenly something has a nice little kick to it. So mm -hmm. understanding how the principles of animation, the principles of filmmaking, you know, that now you just watch YouTube. There's like a million, you know, <laughs> there's a million things about filmmaking. Plus you can watch any film scenes over and over again. I remember I used to, at CalArts, I would sit, they had these little cubicle kind of cozy areas where you, you could go tell somebody like, I want this area and, and play laser disc. And you tell them the laser disc and then they would play some film for you. And I think maybe you had some controls you can go back and forth, but I remember just sitting there like watching like a great scene from a movie over and over again to like, oh, how's the cutting? And when are they deciding to do this and that? And yeah, you know, it's the same thing. Now you can just do it on, you know, on the internet, but. But to me, they're the same. It's just like it, you have to have a little bit more skill maybe in the understanding animation principles if you're an animation director and you have to have a little bit more human skills maybe and like patience and stuff if you're on set. Like you have to be able to kind of get everybody on board at the same time with the same enthusiasm all to hit at once. And 
sometimes with animations, you can kind of like, okay, well now we'll do this part. And now we'll think about that part. And you can kind of parse it out a little bit more, I guess. And, and from the business side though, because I want to switch to that, because that's equally important, if not more important sometimes. When somebody is coming to you and going, hey, I want to hire you. I want to give you money to make some animation. What's some of that basic things that you're thinking about that are different from some of the live action budgeting and planning? Yeah, I guess the big thing would be, where is it going to happen? Where can it exist for a few months? You know, and how much will it cost me to put people up during that time? You know, it's probably very similar to, for instance, I bet if someone looked at the budget for let's say like the shins video someone might look at it and go well this is similar to like a really simple indie feature in terms of it's going to take you three months you know you're only building sets in this one area you know like and i have to put people up we got to put the actors up in town for that amount of time for three months it's like probably kind of similar we got lights to rent there's things that aren't involved like there's no sound boom guy or whatever but yeah live action you could knock out a lot more quicker right so yeah you shoot your music video in one or two days same music video stop motion is going to take you a month at least you know maybe maybe more if you're trying to it also depends on the style right and i always do this horrible thing of like i'm going to tell a story which means i need this shot and i need that shot i'm not just going to like do some wallpapery pretty stuff that we could just kind of repeat and maybe you know shoot something out you know like i'm always trying to get these like specific like it doesn't make sense if you don't have this two second moment we have to shoot that and then they end up Spending. I need my, I need my establishing, my close up, my reaction. Come on guys. It's a story here. Yeah. You have to, you know, I was trying to make these little weird things happen. So story-wise. It seems like everything you do, like the small commercials and the videos, they, they follow some kind of narrative. A lot of times music videos, they have that kind of freedom to much be a little smarter, more abs- abstract, a little bit more visual, yeah. you know, yeah. a little bit, much, you know, much better way. Cause you just go, Oh, we didn't get that idea. Yeah. All right. Let right. Just right. It, yeah, I mean, it. yeah. C- cut Put to the band. Candles. Cut. Yeah. Show the band playing right there. Yeah. Show the band. Cut to the <laughs> band. So the yeah. band, some candles and uh, yeah. we're good. that's all. Yeah. That's really all you need. It's, it's, a, it's a music video. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what was it from the eighties? The white horse on the beach, you know, just oh, have yeah. that, have that run through. <laughs> um, you, you talked a lot about cameras and stuff and, you know, how much does the cinematography change? Because, I mean, that seems to be, you know, something that it sounds extremely important to your background and how stop motion is made. Looking at the cinematography and thinking about the cinematography, both, both with Dragon Frame and in stop motion, how does that play a role that may be different from live action or, or how much more difficult is it to work with the cinematography in stop motion? You know, one thing to keep in mind is that, like, the lensing is all the same. So if you want a wide kind of shot in live action and I were to frame a human being and get a feel for them. If I took a puppet and put the camera in the same proximity, you get the same result. You know, like it's just all scaled. You just scale down, but you use the same lenses. You know, you, you still call out the same kind of, oh, I want a little longer, I'll go to 85 or whatever you're used to for the sensor you have. So that's the same. Lighting principles are the same. It's a little easier with stop motion because you're like God, you're just like, oh, let's put this light here. You know, that's what I was going to say. I actually because of Dragon Frame, I mean, I find fine-tuning cinematography is a lot easier than it is whenever I've tried to shoot my stuff. You know, I, I do. I think those tools are great. I can tune everything. Right. You have the ability to just like, oh, shoot a test frame. Okay, yeah. Shoot. Or, you know, maybe we'll leave the shutter open a little longer here. Just, you know. Right. You know, Lots you know. of fine-tuning and yeah. you can do in stop motion. Yeah. So what's different? You know, obviously, I get the, the biggest difference is 
is the optical difference of when you're closer to a lens. So the lenses are optimized for this sort of human distance. And then now you're in a set and now, you know, sometimes we have to often throw like close focus diopters on the lenses. Also, once you- Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, I always imagined that you were doing it, at least the first time I did it, it was like, everyone's using a 50 millimeter macro and that was it because you were so close. But, you know, you're actually talking, you know, real lens, lens selection is that- yeah. I mean, lens selection is very similar to live act. You're just like, what do I want to see in this shot? And how much of this are we going to pre-plan and squish the set to kind of fit, you know, versus you know, it's the same ideas. Now, one big thing though, is that if I'm on a particular lens, let's say I'm on a 35 millimeter lens and I am three feet away from a, an actor in real life. And then I'm at F five, six or something, there's going to be a certain distance behind that's in focus, whatever that is. And then if I proportionally shrink that down and I put a puppet and he's only a few inches in front of the lens, but it looks basically, it's the same shot. The focus at that close, the depth of field isn't the same. So it's like, you have to close down more to get more depth of field. So that's a little bit of a fight sometimes is, I mean, that's why, you know, what makes something sometimes look like a miniature, like those things that they would do with the tilt shift is when you have very thin focus on something, you go, oh, it seems really small. And that's just because our minds have watched so much footage. And we know that when you get close to something, everything goes out of focus, you know, because you it's just the physics of how lenses work as you get closer and closer to the front. So that would be one difference that you have to take into account. I tend to shoot a little bit more open than other cinematographers in stop motion. A lot of times just go to 16 all the time. Like if most Leica stuff is just, close it all the way down, get everything in focus. If you look at the little prints, you know, I would be at F4 a lot, or, you know, I would go in close up and just like let everything fall away. And, you know, sometimes that was for effect. And sometimes it was like, I don't like that set very much back there, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, that was actually another particular thing I wanted to talk to you specifically about the little prints is you have a lot of blue screen portions or portions where you're compositing in stuff. You know, that seems something like, that's, you know, just somebody looking, it's like, well, why would you do that in stop motion? But it, it does seem like how, how much stop motion from your experience is incorporating that? Because that, you know, obviously you're trying to get rid of the rigging and, and, and some of the armatures and, and the fishing wire and all that. But you know, you're using it in a different, you know, more in a cinematic way, correct? Oh, gosh, I don't think I'm using it in a more cinematic way. I just it's the same problem. It's like, can you know, how wide is this shot supposed to be? Like, OK, do we want to paint a 40 foot backdrop for this or? do I just put up a little blue card behind them? You know, it's like, it's the same thing. Just like if they were shooting the Avengers, it's like, are we going to build the whole city or do we put them on green screen? You know, it's the same idea. It's just like, how much stuff do we have to build? Same rules apply, I guess. And then there's other things that we do to, to make ourselves look good later, which is like, sometimes we can shoot multiple exposures. So it's like the same frame, like frame one, exposure one, frame one, exposure two, right? The camera doesn't move. It's like nothing's animated change, but we can tell DMX, hey, put this light on this exposure and then put the fill light on this exposure. Okay. So now I'm in post. Now I've just got a slider that can say like, how much fill light do I want? Because I didn't want to decide. No one was willing to make a decision on the set or maybe they wanted it to be too bright. And I didn't like that. So now I've got this slider and I keep pulling it down until someone yells at me. I'll just keep processing the shot. So there's ways that you can do that where, and I know of some films where they'll literally have what they call a chopper, which is, Motion control can be told, hey, for this exposure, go move this thing into this position and it'll have a green screen on the end. So you got your character and then this thing goes, Wink, and then they shoot an exposure. Wink. So now they've got a mat on this character for the whole shot. 
So if somebody later goes, ah, let's put some fog behind them and this in front of, you know, they can actually separate the character, even though they didn't shoot them on green screen, they shot them in the set, but then they have this extra exposure with this arm. We actually did that in the United Dragon spot. We had we did it by hand. We put these cards behind the characters on some of the shots where we needed to multiply them and it, they couldn't all fit in the same shot. So we had to shoot multiple shots, but then we, so it's kind of cool because you have, you pull the mat from the green screen, but you don't have to clean green screen off the characters because you're just using that to cut out what already is a clean exposure. So we do that a lot too. That's a fun trick, but it can get crazy too. They can say, oh, we're doing 20 exposures for some shot because we want this separated and we want this light that's flickering to be separate. You know, you can get a little, you can cause more trouble really personally. I have an, a little Arduino set up going at the school and I've been repurposing old tracks and buying linear bearings and kind of putting together some motion control stuff. And I was just wondering, have you heard about Because I know there's a guy in France, Kinetic Armatures. He makes some really interesting motion control stuff that I know is, he just sells it. Have you heard about people around the world coming up kind of with it? Because the Arduino is what? You can buy... They're like $15 or you can buy second, third party ones for 12 bucks and you got your engine for it. You know, you and you guys give us the code. It's pretty inexpensive to put together one of these motion control things if you're creative, you know. So have you heard any of that? Well, like, you know, that would, I'd probably ask my brother because he's, oh, okay. he, and he would probably rub his head and go, ah, these are the people I get the most calls from. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think but he it's, said it's, it's like motion control is the least used and the most support calls because well, it's I would complicated imagine. right yeah it but is complicated. Arduino is you know I don't use Arduino I use our DMC right. 16 so I don't I'm not a good person to talk about the Arduino in it's fact it's pretty interesting upset though. like I'll go to like the big studios and they're like well we made this Arduino setup I'm like buy our DMC 16 I make a Stop box it. for that so you don't have to make it well guys. it's true that yeah I know I can see this too but you know it's it's interesting just for like the guy who you know yeah yeah that on the budget who you know sure. wants a motion control he can spend I mean you can literally put something together I bought all for under a hundred dollars you can get That's all great. the parts I and think was, you, was it like a pan and tilt thing or what, was, what were you doing yeah it just drives stepper motors so you can right, put right. it on a track you can use it for external things you can do pan and tilt you know so i'm still messing with it a lot and seeing how much i can get away with but i love doing stuff like that watch all the motion control tutorials there's like we've added some new things drink oh, have coming you coming out and oh uh, cool a lot of the new stuff it has to do with like full-on virtualized rigs and stuff but there's some of it will apply to what you're doing too. That's cool. I think there's a lot of people using Arduino. I see there little is. videos every once in a while. And like I said, I, I think my brother says there's quite a bit of calls coming in to support about that. Well, maybe I didn't know that that was possible. I'm going to be calling you guys. No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jamie, give me Actually, your phone I number did, real quick. I did, so I I did, know, I did know it was possible, but I didn't think about calling. This is you know, to everybody out there, all the Dragon Frame users. If you run into a real bug that you've confirmed, like, yeah, this is a bug, you can go up to our help menu and say, report an issue. Or, I think that's what it's called, report. Yeah, and it, it goes directly to our team. We find out about it. And what it does is if you check the right boxes, it will send us like kind of a snapshot of what you were just doing in the program. Because a lot of times we don't know, like, how'd you get there? How'd you, like, what right. was your crazy route to have this crazy thing right. happen? And so then if we can see that, sometimes we can turn around updates like in a couple of days on stuff. You know, we're very responsive on that. Yeah, my experience with you guys or our, our guys, you know, you guys have gotten back to us like same day, same hour. We get answers from you guys super quick whenever we need them. So we know that like studios and people doing real productions at any moment 
could probably use the update, you know, could use a fix if there's something funky. So we try to make it happen fast. Again, I'm going to ask you another, you know, impossible question as we're kind of wrapping up. What are some things that you see happening in the world of stop motion, Jamie? The future you, of stop motion. The fu- what's happening? <laughs> what do you think that's changed in the short amount of time since Dragon Frame has come out and as there's been this, you know, explosion of, of, of stop motion that seems to be, you know, here to stay? What are some of the, the good things that are coming out or that you're excited about? I think the the best thing is that you get these more individual voices and you get these stylistic ideas that are different than what you normally think of as claymation or puppet animation. You've got a lot of experimentation going on. So you get all kinds of character design ideas. You get different forms of animation, different pushing, like pushing the cutout thing. Really beautiful film by Sean Pecknold a bunch of years ago that he did at a just really like kind of push the boundaries of cut out stuff. And I, I think that's the result is that you get these total flourishes of different styles happening. As far as the future goes, technically, I don't know. I mean, we're always kind of asking ourselves that will there be some divergence from like, will people just stop using the DSLRs and just start using their iPads or something? You know, I, that I have no clue, but I will say that there are some things that have come and gone. Like no one is asking me for a 3D slider anymore. Like that died. I think Frankenweenie was the first, there was a bunch of films that they did 3D and I think Leica still shoots 3D, but I'm not exactly sure. But Frankenweenie, they decided, no, we're not going to shoot 3D. And that was kind of at the tail end of like this real 3D push after the James Cameron movie. Yeah, and, but uh, 3D just kind of Right, I, I almost forgot and, about it. It was like the yeah. thing, everybody was doing yeah, it for yeah, a yeah. minute. But that, but 3D's, I mean, that's a whole other, you know, rabbit hole. Well, I was going to down. finish the thought is that on Frank and Weenie, they decided let's save the money. It's so much trouble to make the amount of stuff you have to worry with 3D, the depth of the set, every shot, you have to like animate the interocular change, like all this stuff that really, and then the post is a pain because any kind of like rig removal, you have to have a special tool to remove it with the left eye and the right eye. So you don't get some weird wiggly woggly going in between. So Frank and Weenie, they said, we're just going to, sub it out to a company that's gonna 3 Dize it for their 3d release and then since then i don't really know how much 3d projection has been happening the last three or four years even before COVID, it seemed to kind of die out which you know what as far as i'm concerned that's fine my personal opinion is that 3d is kind of fun but it's not essential to the cinema experience it's not i don't remember things in 3d like even my own life i don't remember like oh yeah this was in front of this by this much i just kind of remember my memories are sort of 2D in my brain. I don't know how other people are. If watching it in 2D was an option, I always took that option. I was never into the 3D. But I got to say this, in Tokyo, I've seen a couple movies in 4D. Have you heard of this? Uh-oh. It's it's when your seat is also you take shrooms a ro- when it's, you do it. Well, <laughs> that's that's the that, whole that's method. 5D. Yeah, that's yeah, that <laughs> six. No, it's when your seat is like a ride. Oh and yeah, it yeah, like, yeah, And it like sprays you with water. And I didn't know that. My I went to go see a movie with my friend there, and he said you he didn't know what was going to be happening. I did not. He said <laughs> we're buying in 4D. I sat in the seat, and then all of a sudden the splash screen that shows you, you know, like the THX, what the theater does. All of a sudden my seat popped up, and it took you. And I was like, wait a minute. For two hours of this, and they had people you can't have anything in the aisles, and you know, it's just so that's 40. So, you guys got any plans for 40? Are you allowed input? to have popcorn? Are you allowed to like have <laughs> you are, but you got to like hold it. it, you got to clutch it. it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> 4D. <laughs> All right, Aaron, any, any, any last big questions we can uh, pick Jamie's brain on? I don't know if I have a question, but I just want to say, you know, like what you're saying, it's, it's a future of stop motion. 
I don't think or look into those things, but I've kind of known you guys have a huge user base out there. And I think that, like you said, it is, it gives, when I was growing up, I always knew I'd animate, I'd draw, you know, I always knew, but it was always a matter of, okay, how am I going to do that? And in the early days, mm. it was Super 8. And to me, Dragon Frame took that away. You know what I mean? That's my way, you know, even before I still not great at digital drawing, I was using it for pencil tests. The Dragon Frame just kind of cut out all that worry. It was just the way I That's could so do great it. To so, hear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've so. had a couple people who, you know, young youngsters say, who went, you know, Dragon Frame was there when they got to college, and then they'll go, "What did people use before this?" Like they kind of, like, kind of have like this empty history. It's like, and I just go, "Nothing, nothing well, it didn't exist." I think <laughs> another huge thing about it was that those stop motion programs that we were using before, like the ones I was saying, like I stop motion and stuff, they were just building the film, and afterwards you got you exported the video, and they weren't saving the frames to do all the post in. At least the ones that we had, that was the huge. So you had to constantly save, you know. Know, while you I, were making they were so, holding everything in memory for you yeah so we, you had to save and dragon frame if it crashed i just say oh well i got those the frames are taken they're still sitting there i just need to start and it doesn't really crash that often from what i remember it's okay so, yeah you can the word crash. no but I, I i i really don't it's pretty stable you know so when we were trying to decide if we should venture into this business we had to look at who was making software and you know we looked at I stop motion. And I think I remember my brother going, oh, there's this program. It's pretty popular. And it's okay. Let me take a look. And then one of the things it didn't have was it didn't have a way to just like step to live. Like you couldn't just go frame, frame, frame live. It was like frame, 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 onion skin of over your last frame. So you couldn't get that thing that animators, that's by the way, the great kind of joke, which is that nobody uses onion skin to animate in the professional world. I've never seen the onion skin is not on. It's only on sometimes if they have to line something up because what they're doing, the, the people who are the best, they're just looking at how does the last frame cut to the next frame? How does it feel when it jumps to that live? And that's when they decide to commit to it. If you always have a, like a DX over it, you're never getting that. It's like trying to play two notes. You know, you're trying to figure out a melody and you're playing the last note over the next note. You know, like it, you would never hear what the melody is. And so that was something I didn't particularly understand until we did the United Commercial. And I had a real animator, like a great animator, this guy, Kim Blanchett. He said, oh no, I gotta have this tick, tick, tick live. I gotta have that. I'm like, okay, we'll put that in. So that was one of the first things he asked for. But then when I, I looked at that and there was another program that they hadn't figured that out yet either. I thought, well, I think we're in a good place to just immediately have like a, a real trained animator look at this and go, okay, I'll take that over these other ones. There's a few other things too, but yeah, like you said, like just put it in a folder. This isn't where you're going to make your movie for your friends. You're going to be a professional and you're going to keep these frames safely. So yeah, there's like little cues like that, that someone who's been in the industry would see. And that's what we tried to do. We tried to make it so that we, we never tried to sell it to kids or to like get your grandmother to buy this for you. It was always, if we got the pros to go, yeah, this is the thing. It would be trickle down from there, word of mouth, you know, and that was kind of our, if we had a business plan, that's what it was. Jamie, there are a billion more things that I want to pick your brain on, but I can't because we have somewhat of a limited time. But it, it's so important that, you know, really, aside from, you know, how awesome Dragon Frame is, it's great to talk to somebody who's actually creating stop motion for a living. Oh, thanks. Uh, Aaron, thank you as well. Yeah, thanks right, for having me. It's right. nice to meet Th you guys. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Jamie. I'm I'm really happy to finally meet you. I've been wanting to Absolutely. meet you for years, so it's great to meet you. So there you have it. Another voice in the world of stop motion with some great advice on building a career in art and design. 
And because more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise, and because employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals, here at the Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request more info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, animation, film production, and more, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. I'm Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.